This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with Roosevelt Montas about his new book, Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. You say at the outset, Roosevelt, that your book is both personal and polemical, and in both voices you tell a strong and uplifting story. Before we get to the old books themselves and why they are still timely and headline news, perhaps you can begin with your own finding of Socrates in a trash can on a sidewalk in New York City. Tell us who and where you are now, who and where you were then. Thank you, Louis. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here talking to you. Thank you for that question. I am currently a senior lecturer in American studies and English at Columbia University. I've been at Columbia, frankly, most of my life. Um, since I went there as an undergraduate, graduate school, um, I was director of its center for the core curriculum for 10 years and then moved on to uh, or returned to a faculty position that I occupy now. I'm an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. I, I came to the United States uh, just before my 12th birthday. I came from a rural, small mountain village in the Dominican Republic. Landing in New York in 1995 was as, as profoundly a disorienting and uh, strange transplant as, as, as you can imagine. I might have as well landed in, in Mars. I had hardly ever left my small town and uh, lived in Queens, attended public schools, bilingual education in the local public school, a under-resourced, overcrowded middle school, as, as so many of, of our urban public schools are. And uh, from there, went to the local high school, which was, um, I found myself in a better situation there, in part because of a large cohort of immigrant students like myself who were very serious about school, about school and studies. And so I was very fortunate to land in that in that particular public school. And sometime kind of in the middle of, of, of my public school, my, my high school career when I was in the 10th grade, neighbors next door in Queens on a winter night threw out a bunch of books, a big pile of books. And I went over and, and started looking at them. And, and the books were, some of them were gorgeous editions. I picked up two. My English wasn't very good, so I knew it was, I couldn't do much with the books. So I just picked two beautiful volumes that turned out to be a part of a series called the Harvard Universal Classics. And one of them was a volume of Plato's dialogues containing the last days of Socrates, the trial, the apology, it's the dialogue, um, which records the trial, the credo which records a conversation he has a few days before his execution and the, and the Phaedo, which records the last day of his, of his life uh, and ends with, with him drinking the poison. That book, um, I started reading haltingly with, with great effort, but it was immediately compelling. And a few days after I had started reading it, I was reading it in the hallway of his school. And a teacher who saw me reading this approached me and engaged me in conversation and that book and that and that that conversation opened uh, really what has been a, a very important relationship 
since then in my life. He's he's probably my most important mentor uh, ever. He's still he's now a very old man, and we are still very close. So the title of the book, Rescuing Socrates. It, there's a lot in that in that, that it alludes to, but the the primary thing it alludes to is that that encounter where I when I picked up a book from a garbage pile and out of it emerged Socrates. Out of it also emerges the Roosevelt Montas we know now. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 and, all right. So you you find the book. You're in high school in Queens. And through your mentor, you managed to apply and become accepted at Columbia University at the age of 18 in 1991. And talk about your introduction to Columbia and the core curriculum. I, I decided to attend Columbia because it was it was reputed to be the most selective school, the most difficult school to get into um, that you could get to on the on the New York City subway. I did not know what the Ivy League was, did not know what the core curriculum was. Um, my mother, who I lived with at the time, had not graduated high school, didn't speak English, um, just did not come from a culture, from a context that understood what going to college was, or certainly nothing about the American higher education system. Um, my teacher, uh, John Philippides, uh, encouraged me to apply to Columbia. I was pretty determined not to leave New York. I could not fathom the idea of going away for school. I had been so profoundly uprooted and and still kind of finding my sense of self in the in, in the strange world I was in, kind of still reeling from the trauma of that uh, of that uprooting. And there was no way I was going to move to some random place where I knew no one where no one knew me, where I had no reason to be there except to go to school. So I was, I was pretty sure I was going to stay in New York and only applied to schools in New York. And, and, and applied to Columbia again because John Philippides encouraged me to. He was the only person to read my personal statement. I just did not consult anyone in writing that application except that one time that he and I sat down in the school cafeteria. And he, boy, he improved the essay a lot. But it was, it was, a, one, it was a one read uh, and there it went. And, and I was lucky enough to get in to Columbia through a program called the Higher Education Opportunity Program, which is a, a combination of, of um, enhanced financial aid and academic support for for students who are at risk, who are under underprepared, as, as I certainly was, landed at Columbia and encountered its famous core curriculum. People may not may not know, but Columbia has what's still often called a great books program. And in fact, Columbia is the place where that curricular idea gets invented in in back in the late in the late teens, 1919 um, and through the 20s. The, the centerpieces of the core curriculum are two year long courses that every first year and second student, second year student takes. The first year course is uh, kind of great books in, in the Western tradition, great literary works in the Western tradition from Plato to the 20th century. The sophomore course is same idea with philosophical texts from Plato to the 20th century. These books were the tools through which I make sense of my own being in America at an Ivy League institution as an immigrant in the in the United States. I literally made sense of my being by reading and thinking and talking about those books. In some ways, I feel like the core curriculum was made just for me. It was exactly 
gave me exactly the tools, the perspectives, the windows into the culture that I needed to make sense of my own life. I mean, that's that's magnificent. I mean, that's, to me, that's that's a great great story. The uh, in your own book, rescuing Socrates, you devote four chapters to the writers in the core, core curriculum for whom, from whom you have learned much. Tell us who they are. Yeah, Plato and, and, and the figure of Socrates specifically, St. Augustine, whom I encountered through his book Confessions as a freshman at Columbia, then Sigmund Freud, who I, I also first encountered at Columbia and, and whom I read in the sophomore course, and then Mahatma Gandhi, a figure that came into my universe after graduate school, but which um, I began teaching at Columbia when I was uh, a faculty member teaching in the core, in the core curriculum. While I was still director, I was teaching and introduced that in my own section. And eventually others also introduced it in their own sections until it, it became an actual um, part of the curriculum. It's now part of what every Columbia undergraduate read. I, I, I don't mean to make it sound like it was my doing. I, I don't take credit for it. It was, it was like almost everything that happens in that curriculum, the strange emergence of a consensus, a, the rare thing, a consensus among the faculty. But uh, those are the four books. Those are the four books. And what's wonderful about them is they cross a span of 3,000 years, two ancients, two moderns, one African, two Europeans, and one Indian, a Christian saint, a pagan philosopher, a Jewish atheist, and a Hindu ascetic. I mean, that's a broad range of human consciousness. Talk about the, the first chapter you give us in the book is Augustine, and you quote him as saying, Lord, you turned my attention back to myself. And that is the point of, of a liberal education. Yeah, you know, you were talking about the, the kind of the variety, the cultural, chronological difference between these writers. And uh, it's in itself an extraordinary thing that they each can speak so powerfully to a 21st century Dominican immigrants to the United States uh, and that they can speak to each other. Um, it, it, it signals, it demonstrates something fundamental that they are touching that is in them and that is in me and that I think is in pretty much everyone. And that is captured by that, but by, by Augustine's activity of, of, of self-investigation. Uh, and he sees it's, you know, it's, it, it's beautiful that he sees his journey to Christianity, to God, to the truth as a reorientation of his intellect towards his own interior rather than the self being here as kind of the, as it is elsewhere in St. Augustine's theology, as the thing towards which when you turn, you turn away from God. Sin is the making this, the prerogatives of the self be above the, the commands or the demands of God. Sin is putting the self above God. But here in this formulation, you get that his journey towards God has to do with examination of his interiority with a reorientation of his mind and his heart towards investigation 
of his of himself and that's something that you see in the other authors too and and to me it was a tremendous revelation and and, and not only did it did it reveal myself as an object of study of observation of inquiry but also it gave me tools with which i can do that it gives me language and a vocabulary and augustine did for me what he says the lord did for him which is he really affected this reorientation of the way that i thought about education the way that i thought about my own life and um, suddenly for me and this has been the case ever since education has always been primarily a tool for self exploration it has been primarily a tool to shed light and deepen and enrich my own sense of my human experience that is my idea of a liberal education there are other forms of education sometimes you educate yourself to learn about electromagnetism or to learn about how the human body works or to learn some aspect of the natural world or some process and that's all that's all real knowledge and all that matters but that is not liberal education and that is not the sort of education that will create a fully fledged and functioning citizen in a democracy you need this other thing you need this other thing that has to do with self cultivation and that has to do with self introspection with self awareness and which is uh, the the ultimate goal of a liberal education yes i mean it, it is i'm reminded of of the poet goethe mm-hmm. talking about the richness of the human inheritance which is what the great books and the great thinkers are goethe said that he who cannot draw on 3000 years is living hand to mouth and i mean liberal education as you understand it is our most precious inheritance and and we cheat uh, the younger generation if we don't give them access to it and so yeah yeah well, i mean one of the one of the criticisms of liberal education these days is that it's only for rich liberals but mm-hmm. your life proves otherwise i mean it is yeah of yeah. immense value to people who are in the lower reaches of society yes i think it is of a special an urgent and critical value to people who have backgrounds like myself people who have been traditionally excluded from access to what is ultimately the tools of social agency and the tools of full participation in the broader society and i think it's 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 especially criminal or lamentable that there is an ideological justification an ideological justification that poses itself as progressive that says this tradition and these works are not appropriate are not useful they're not fitting for those populations it is it is quite quite lamentable verging on criminal and 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 an instance of a strange phenomenon in which the to use very loose and generalized categories in which the oppressed internalize aspects of the ideology of the oppressor that is i i think people in the name of social justice can easily reproduce or can easily contribute to the reproduction of the power structures that have kept the people who are excluded excluded 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, that is the point of my own publication, Lapham's Quarterly, which is that it, the liberal education is the most powerful tool that we have to subvert the hierarchies of social privilege that keep those who are down, down. I mean, that's your own sentence. And my own experience. And your own experience. You add to the to, to Socrates and Augustine and Freud, you add Gandhi. Tell us, I mean, Gandhi is somewhat outside of, of the Western canon, but he belongs within it. And, and, and explain your understanding of Gandhi and, and how you came to add him to the curriculum. Yeah, Gandhi is a really unique figure. Um, and, and I agree with you that he belongs in any construction of the Western canon. That is, he belongs as a, as a major thinker in the Western tradition, obviously not only in the Western tradition. And, and that is partly what makes him special, that he is a kind of hinge figure. Um, the Columbia core curriculum to this day is almost exclusively Western. That is, it, it, it charts a conversation, a textual tradition that goes from antiquity in largely the Mediterranean basin, kind of North Africa, Middle East, Europe, and then and then extending into the into Northern Europe, a little bit of Asia, of Asia, and uh, into the New World after uh, after the Renaissance. Gandhi, of course, is rooted in a tradition of learning, of scholarship, of of debate, of of practice, of philosophical and ethical thinking. That is completely is, is is even more ancient than this Western tradition, and following an entirely different lineage. At the same time, Gandhi is fully immersed through his education in London as a as a barrister, but then his own self education, fully immersed in this Western tradition. He's a big a big reader and admirer of Jesus, of Socrates, of John Ruskin, of Leo Tolstoy. Uh, of Henry David Thoreau, and uh, just an ex he's an extraordinary reader. You, you see the kind of, when Gandhi's, one of his long prison terms, uh, he kept a list of everything that he was reading. And it's just, it's, it's extraordinary, the amount of text that he consumed. Uh, and when he was out of jail, he slowed down, but he was still a, a, a very intense reader and student. So, he is able to bring these traditions together and to, on the one hand, challenge some very basic assumptions of what we call the Western tradition and reject some basic assumptions of the Western tradition, but at the same time, illuminate them from a quarter, from a, from a, from a source of light that is, uh, that is just uniquely, uniquely valuable. Um, and I, I, my students, myself, who come to Gandhi after, in the case of my students, after two years of studying deeply, intensely, the Western tradition, in my case, after graduate school, find a, a, a new depth and a new, a, a new framing through which to under, to understand, uh, that tradition. So it's, it's quite, it, it's quite valuable. And I can talk about some of his specific ideas and, and, and actions, but his his value as part of that tradition, I think, is 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 um, 
tremendous. Talk about the obstacles against teaching liberal education these days. I mean, it was, you know, 40 years ago, it was more central to American higher education than it is now. So, so what are the barriers? I mean, what, what, what are the, what is the teaching of the liberal education up against? Yeah, this is an issue I've, I've thought a lot about. And my 10 years as director of the Columbia core curriculum, it was a, a, I was kind of in the, in the nexus of um, these debates, forces, currents that make the practice of liberal edu- education today so difficult. So I like to call it countercultural. Um, and you might, you can think of the, the challenges, the barriers to liberal education as in two buckets. There's a set of external challenges that is external to the practice in the university and, and some internal ones in the university. But the external ones have to do with the capitalist, free market, consumerist, materialist, materialist culture in which we live. There is an, a, an increasing ascendant notion of education as transactional, as you, you, you spend money and time in order to get a credential that allows you to go and convert it into, into money, go and convert it into, into security and, 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 and prosperity. And, and there is this, this very pervasive in our culture conflation between success and happiness or, or actually between success and economic prosperity. Sometimes people say that they are successful and by that they mean they made a lot of money. And uh, that value system that dominates has consequences into, say, the way we fund schools. Um, there's, there, there's this dramatic decline in public support for, for state universities and especially state universities that, that, that want to pay any attention to non-practical subjects, to liberal, to liberal arts. Uh, so there is this, this public pressure and erosion of support in our public institutions for 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 liberal education and of course the the increasing sense that college is there as a tool for economic advancement only that is that college is there to give skills for job preparation there are other aspects of that external challenge that we can talk about but then there's a whole bunch of internal challenges that have to do with the structure of the university and with the kind of intellectual culture of the university. On the structure of the university, universities today, and beginning in the 19th century, are dominated by the notion that their purpose, their raison d'etre, is to uh, produce, codify, and disseminate new knowledge. This is the research university. You investigate, you disseminate, and you and you and you build new knowledge on top of the old, um, and this is a model that works very well in the in the sciences, in health, and technology. It even works well in 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 the social sciences. It is a model that does not work at all in the liberal arts or in the humanities, where the questions that 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 we deal with and the purposes of our activity are not about the accumulation. The, the questions are not susceptible are not subject to resolution by the mere accumulation of evidence. The, the, the basic questions of humanity, of existence, of you know the nature of political authority, the just distribution of, an, of, of a society's wealth, of the um, nature of ju- justice and, and the legitimacy of, of practices based on ideas of justice, etc. Just almost endless questions, none of which can simply be resolved by accumulating data 
Um, so it's a different sort of knowledge. Doesn't work in the humanities, that paradigm, but it's the dominant one in the university. So that will make the liberal pursuit of knowledge ill at ease, kind of at odds with the prevailing culture, intellectual culture and commitments of the university. That translates institutionally. One of the, one of, one of the, manifestations institutionally is that universities are organized around disciplines and departments. Even the humanities, you have literature, philosophy, history, sociology, the different different literatures, linguistics, etc. Yet the questions, again, that liberal education concerns itself, which come with the territory of being human, are, are fundamentally non-disciplinary questions. So when you when the courses that are offered and the paths that are offered are already prepackaged into disciplines, that is going to compromise the offering of true liberal education. One last set of challenges to mention internally are ideological. You alluded to them before. A prevailing sense in the academy that somehow the classics, the canon, the tradition of liberal learning from which our democracy and very, you know, very foundational aspects of our, of our value systems like democracy and gender equality and free markets and scientific point of view, and that that tradition is somehow morally tainted, morally compromised, and un, unfitting for contemporary education. This, this, this sometimes called postmodern or, or critical turn that rejects some of the foundations of the tradition of learning, the liberal tradition of learning that we have inherited. That's a set of kind of ideological challenges inside. So Sorry to go on and on, but when, when you put these external, cultural, broad, political, cultural, social challenges together with this internal, institutional, uh, epistemological, ho- hostile environment, you get the situation where we have now, which is a, a precipitous decline and withering of liberal education within our university system. Talk about the what is the objective, the objective of the materialist education is money and and uh, success what success defined as as money but the objective according to socrates is the good life the beautiful life and a just life are the same it's the freedom of the mind to have confidence in in one's own humanity in one's own mind and, and that's to me what the liberal arts are, are about, but that that's not what the universities are about. Exactly. That is not what the universities are about. And, and and in many ways universities emerged uh and organized themselves as an explicit alternative to that meaning of education. And this has its roots in the philosophical side of the scientific revolution and figures like Bacon and Descartes, who look at the tradition of kind of scholastic medieval learning and scholarship and say, you know, this is a, it's just a lot of hot air. It doesn't, it doesn't come together. It actually, it's actually false knowledge. Uh, we're going to reorient the knowledge project to not the old, but the new. And we're going to come up with methods to investigate and to disseminate and to crack, to use contemporary language, to hack nature, to figure out how nature works. So medicine 
and, and, and practical applications of science to master, dominate the natural world for the benefit of mankind becomes the, the object of knowledge. The true knowledge becomes that with, with mathematics as being kind of the paradigm. To, to know something is to be able to reduce it to its mathematical form. And there's no denying the power of that paradigm and, and, and how much we owe to that. But that rejection of a particular kind of humanist tradition, when it becomes institutionalized, you know, you, you get throwing out the baby with the bathwater. That is, you, there is something that that tradition transmitted with all of the problems that they, these thinkers recognized and rejected. There was something else that tra tradition transmitted, which became lost which has to do with this, uh, with this condition that we find ourselves of freedom that makes the meaning of our lives reside somewhere above or somewhere abstracted from meeting of our material needs. If all there is to knowledge is to ensure your security, your health, your prosperity, and that's it, that's the point of knowledge, it leaves you empty. It leaves you uh, without meaning. Once we have those basic material needs met, our whole lives, our whole sense of ourselves, of the worth of our lives, of the point of living, gets organized around questions of meaning, value, existence. And that is what gets left behind in this transformation of universities from the humanist medieval tradition to the research university that really takes a couple of centuries for it to emerged in the, in, in the middle of the 19th century um, as, as the research universities we know today. You put the problem in a very simple and wonderful sentence. You say, education is not for making a living, but for living meaningfully. That's the point. I mean, you, you ask yourself the question at one point, what am I striving for? Right. What, is, what is the purpose? And the purpose is to live meaningfully. When Young people come to school, they come to college, they are hankering for this. It's not true that they come in just as kind of crass materialist, just, you know, I just want a career, I just want a job. We tell them that that's what they should go to college to do and to want and to, and to strive for. But invariably, I find that students are deeply disappointed by that vision and are actually urgently concerned, obsessed with these deeper questions of what is worth striving for? Is, is really what life is about getting the biggest job, the biggest salary, the biggest, the biggest house, the, the, the biggest share of power? Or is there, is there something else? What's, what's the point of the whole thing? How do I think about the whole thing? Students are vitally concerned with these questions. And yet we treat them in our curriculum as if those questions don't matter and as, if, and as if all they care about is getting the right internship so that they can, it can lead to the right career. Well, I've got to tell you, uh, Roosevelt, your book is wonderful. And the, uh, I hope it has as many readers as possible. And it's been a, really a pleasure talking to you today. We've been talking to Roosevelt Montas, author of the new and very fine, exceptional, and to my mind, necessary book, Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. Thank you, Louis. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. 
Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.